0: If your team knows that you care about them, if your team knows that you view them as people and not implements, then everything flows from there.
1: Welcome to Leadership Unboxed, where we delve into the stories and experiences of the people who shape our community. Our guest today is Alan Rosenberg, former executive editor of the Providence Journal and a strong advocate of leading through humanity sharing his journey and offering unique insights on leadership and the role of journalism in society. Get ready to be inspired and learn from his wealth of knowledge and experience. Let's get started with Alan Rosenberg on Leadership Unboxed. Thanks for joining me today.
0: Well, thanks for having me.
1: Let's jump right in. What inspired you to pursue a career in journalism and the arts?
0: Well, uh, journalism came about in a roundabout sort of way. I really wanted to be president of the United States. I'm not kidding. Uh, and I, but I knew you couldn't just become the president. Uh, you had to probably be a Senator or something beforehand, but you couldn't just become a Senator. You, a lot of people are lawyers before they're in the Senate. Uh, but you can't just become a lawyer. So I had to study something as an undergrad, and I thought that studying journalism would uh, make it you know, more likely that I could uh, express myself concisely, that I could be observant, things that would help me in the, this future career. And then it turned out that I had some talent at it, and enjoyed it and so i put law school and politics on temporary hold which is where they still are.
1: thanks for that yeah and what are some of the more rewarding aspects of being a newspaper
0: editor well i think the idea that you are helping the community uh, that you are giving people information that they need uh, to make good decisions about voting to make uh, good decisions about uh, a variety of things uh, today. In today's journal, there's something about what's open, what's closed on New Year's. Uh, it's a practical information. Uh, when I was the uh, arts and entertainment editor, which I did for 23 years, um, it was helping people find fun ways and interesting ways to spend their time. Uh, to you know, here's a good play, here's a good TV show, uh, here's a good book. Uh, and, I, and I still get to do the audiobooks thing, uh, reviewing them uh, for the journal. Uh, so I'm still, in some small way, helping with that. But the, I think it's the idea of helping people. It's certainly not to get rich, because uh, unless you are at the very top of uh, journalism, whether that's uh, you know a, a huge job at the New York Times or the Washington Post, or whether that's on TV Uh, you're not going to get rich as a journalist. Most journalists today, certainly newspaper journalists, uh, don't make really much of a living wage, to be honest with you. Um, If you're not at a a union paper, which the journal is, it's organized by the the newspaper bill, you're probably not really making enough uh, to survive with any margin for error.
1: So what drives you to be part of this system that's less financially rewarding?
0: Well, it's also fun. It is, you know, when you're covering a story on, on deadline, if you're covering, and I hate to say this because it will make me sound like a horrible person, if there's some huge tragedy that strikes and you are trying to unravel for your audience on deadline, you're, you're Adrenaline starts pumping, your blood starts flowing. It's an amazing experience uh, to to be covering the news uh, on deadline with a big big story that you know people are waiting to find out what's going on. Uh, so beyond this the aspect of service, it's just fun. It's great. It's a great thing to do. I recommend it to everyone.
1: It's great to hear. And what are some of the most uh, impactful, memorable stories that you remember covering?
0: Uh, Well, there was a big society murder case uh, back in the early 1980s called Klaus von Bu. Klaus von Bulow was the man who was charged with twice trying to kill his wife by injecting her with insulin. She was a utilities uh, heiress from Pittsburgh. Uh, he was a nobody from Denmark, but they had bought a house in Newport on Bellevue Avenue, and they were part of high society, and then she was found on her bathroom floor in a coma twice. Uh, the second time, she never came out of the coma, and that was, there was a huge trial that brought uh, reporters from all over the world, uh, and I was part of both the coverage of both trials. The first time, I was kind of a utility guy. Covering extra things that the big important people didn't have time to cover on our team, uh, and the second time I was running the team, so that was a that was a probably the biggest story. Uh, I've also had the opportunity to interview William Shatner uh, and uh, Majel Barrett and other people from the Star Trek universe, uh, which is you know I, I'm, I'm kind of a nerd in that way, and I and I love Star Trek, uh, and so talking to William Shatner say was probably uh, the other big highlight that comes to mind.
1: Great, and what are some effective strategies for balancing the need to provide accurate information in news while maintaining respect for the audiences?
0: Well I don't think there's a balance there. I think it's all one thing. Uh, If you are not providing accurate information. you're not respecting your audience. Uh, you know, the idea that uh, you should exaggerate to get clicks, that's not journalism. That's something else. Uh, the idea that you should uh, uh, make things up, never. Uh, you know the idea that, 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 that we're all fake news preposterous. you, know, you, res- you respect your audience, and in turn, you get an audience, and you keep an audience, uh, and it's all so it's all one thing. Accuracy is the most important thing. If you don't have that, if you don't have that, you don't have your reputation. If you don't have that, you got nothing.
1: That's profound. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And I'm going to shift gears a little bit to leadership in building, uh, in being an editor for. Uh, the journal for uh, a few decades, how can leaders create a culture of trust and respect among their team, their organization?
0: That's a great question. Um, so I, I was the arts editor for, or, and arts editor for 23 years, and I, I was a breaking news editor and a suburban editor, and then for the last uh, four years, managing editor and then the executive editor. So a lot of different kinds of editing. Um, But I think it's all it's all one thing in that you treat people with respect. You treat people uh, with dignity. If you disagree with them, you don't be disagreeable. Uh, You know, and the more power you have, the more lightly you need to tread in order not to harm people's self-esteem. I Saw several times editors just being, and they, these were good people. I don't want to cast any aspersions. Just sort of casually cruel, and they weren't thinking about it. They weren't trying to be cruel, but uh, they had their uh, they had the ability to do whatever they wanted to do, and they took it. Uh, and I never wanted to be that guy. Uh, so you know, I think if you if if the if your team knows that you care about them, if your team knows that you view them as people and not implements then everything flows from that
1: great so having respect and treating people as people right and how can we learn to have difficult conversations you mentioned times when you might disagree with opinions uh, how can we have how can we learn to have difficult conversations without making assumptions or passing judgment or is that part of
0: the process Well, I think when you are having that difficult conversation, first you need to come in with an idea of what it is you want to accomplish with that conversation. What's the goal? Where do you want to end up? Uh, It can't or shouldn't be. uh, Well, I want to show that person what they're doing wrong. Because once they know what they're doing wrong, where are they? So you need... To have a goal of leading them towards what you think is right, towards the the path that they should be taking. The most difficult conversations, unfortunately, uh, there is no good ending to them. I'm talking about conversations where you're laying somebody off. Uh, Those were the most horrible things that I ever had to do as an editor at the journal, and unfortunately, I had to do them more often than I ever. But again, you approach that conversation the way you would hope someone would approach it with you. You know, there, There's a school of thought that says, well, the person conducting the layoff never apologizes because that indicates that there's some other course that could have been taken That You don't want to go down that road. People will get upset. I always ended up doing the opposite because I always was regretful. That I had to tell somebody, this is your last day, and so I would say, I, I'm so very sorry, but today's your last day at the Providence Journal, and um, these were people I'd known for for years, sometimes for decades. You can't approach that difficult conversation coldly, um, because you're both human beings, and you can't. I mean. If, I care. I can't tell speak for everybody else. but I cared about these people. and um, what was remarkable to me and brought me to tears sometimes was that they would turn around and start comforting me. I know you I know you don't want to do this. I know you don't have a choice. Um, and uh, so I, so I think that kind of difficult, con- even that kind of difficult conversation can go all right even though there's not a good outcome at the end
1: of it. A little bit of compassion and empathy goes a long way there. It sure does. Now, taking a broader look, taking a step back and looking at the ever evolving landscape that we have in today's culture and society, what are some of the challenges that you see for leaders in today's world?
0: Wow, Uh, that's a very broad question. Um, I think it depends partly on what kind of leadership, you know, what kind of organization you're trying to I lead. Mean, the challenges the president faces are very different from you know, challenges that an editor faces. Um, I think the common thread is is really that thread of keeping a humane face uh, on leadership. Uh, the the world of business and the world of politics are both increasingly harsh, uh, as we have seen over the last several years in the world of politics and government, uh, as we continue to see in the world of business, and I think of of my field uh, with the the layoffs not just in newspapers, at CNN, at uh, online places like BuzzFeed and Vice that looked very prosperous. there are um, there are harsh realities all around us and keeping the humanity of it, keeping uh, the face that says, you matter to me as a person and not just a, a cog in my machine. Uh, I think that's the common thread, the common challenge that leaders today face.
1: That sense of humanity, Just to kind of double click on that, what are elements that leaders can work on to further develop the human skills?
0: I think part of it is innate. Um, But I think in terms of what people can work on, uh, I think having a practice of asking yourself what would this mean to me if it were happening to me? How would I want to be treated in this case? Uh, would I want to be blindsided or would I want a warning of something that's going to happen? Uh, and of course, there are there are um, constraints. You can't always, there are things that have to be secret. You can't always tell everybody everything. But uh, I think if you can cultivate a sense of trying to treat people, you know, there's a reason it's the golden rule, right? Trying to be, treat people the way you want to be treated. Uh, I think everything else flows from that.
1: The thing that we hear in grade school still applies as we get older and more experienced and wiser.
0: Yeah. It.
1: So what advice would you give someone who's just starting out in a leadership
0: role? Build yourself a team, listen to that team, consult with that team, but don't be afraid to make the decision when the time comes and you are the one responsible for making that decision. Uh, you know, I was blessed when I was uh, the executive editor of the journal with having a very strong group of people around me who were both skilled and terrific human beings. Uh, not everybody is able to get people who have both of those things. Um, but uh, I always felt comfortable, and also, and not just comfortable, but that it was imperative that before making big decisions, uh, that I talked to them, uh, sometimes one-on-one, sometimes as a group, uh, because these were people who had experience and wisdom, and I would have been a fool to just say, well, <laughs> I'm in charge, I know everything, uh, and to act as though that were the case, which it definitely was not. Um, and the, you know, what made decisions about things like layoffs especially difficult, not just the human cost of them, was that I really couldn't consult people. Uh, these were th- these are things that had to be really closely held and so uh, I couldn't turn to my to my group of, of leaders uh, but when I could I, I felt much more confident that uh, I was making the right decisions and doing the right things uh, knowing all the time that if something went south I couldn't say well <laughs> he told me to do it no, that's not how it works. Once you've taken in all the facts, taken in all the advice, then you also have to be comfortable with the, the fact that you take the responsibility as well as whatever glory there is to be had.
1: Understanding the information, processing that, making a decision and being comfortable with that decision, understanding the why behind it. Right. Okay. Got it. Thank you. Now I'm going to shift gears and talk a little bit about the media, the changing uh, media landscape and the community. So how has, from your perspective, how has the media landscape changed over the past three to five years and what can we do to foster a more constructive dialogue?
0: Um, there, you know, what's happened in the last three or five years, I think, is an acceleration of trends that have been present uh, for decades. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm thinking in a number of ways, uh, starting with technologically. Uh, the, uh, you know, when I started at the Providence Journal in 1978, uh, we uh, worked on uh machines that were like teletype machines they had no memory. You typed your story in and you hoped the power didn't blink before you could transmit it from Greenville to Providence. Uh, You took pictures and you walked your film down Route 116 to Route 44 to put it on a bus to get it to the bus station across from the Providence Journal building so that a copy kit could come out and get the film and take it upstairs. Uh, to the photo lab and, dev- and have it developed, uh, and of course today everything's electronic and instantaneous. Uh, so uh, the the everything about how news is gathered has changed, uh, technologically. The principles of how news is gathered, that you want to be first and best and most accurate, have not changed. But how do you go about it? Everything has changed. Uh, in terms of running a business, uh, You know, the journal of 45 years ago uh, was fat with classified advertising that now goes to Craigslist, uh, fat with display advertising from a host of businesses that no longer exist, uh, went out to hundreds of thousands of people instead of the tens of thousands, low tens of thousands that it does today. Um, and there was no way to transmit automatically uh, to, the, uh, to an audience, and instantaneously to an audience as you can do today online. Uh, and that has only accelerated in the last few years. Uh, the climate in which we operate has gotten steadily less trustful uh, and again, you know, not—I won't tell you that in 1978 everybody loved the Providence Journal because that would be completely untrue. There were a lot of people we had written stories about that they that were negative stories that didn't like us at all. Uh, but we were widely respected uh, and an essential news source, uh, and uh, not an, not an easy target. For, uh, politicians who might want to take a crack. And I'm not just talking about the journal here, but the news media writ large. Um, today the advertising base has shrunk dramatically. The subscription base for all media has shrunk, except for uh, huge national organizations like the New York Times and Washington Post that can scale on a national level. Um, and the media have become both a scapegoat in a lot of ways, and also kind of mushed together in people's vernacular. So when people talk about the media, it's as though it's all one thing, as though Fox News is the same thing as Channel 12, and that's the same thing as the Providence Journal. And these are very different things, Uh, not just these three, obviously, but all of them. they are, uh, you know, and, and newspapers have taken the heat for a lot of the sins of TV and cable news. You know, when people talk about uh, uh, bias and nightly TV shows uh, on all the major cable networks where posts are free to share their opinions. And uh, not only free, demanded to share their opinions. Uh, and people think that's journalism. That is not journalism. I and mean, you get those people in a court of law, like Tucker Carlson, uh, and, and then he will say, Well, this is, uh, what I do isn't journalism, it's entertainment, which I don't think he ever really says on his program. Uh, but in people's minds, that's journalism. And so they think that newspapers operate the same way, that, that reporters are there and editors are there saying, Oh, I'm going to put my finger on the scale for this one. Oh, we're going to get this guy. Good. That, that's not how it works in a, new, in a newsroom, in a real newsroom. Um, but people look at this, and they put it together as something called the media. And then, of course, you got politicians stirring the pot. Uh, they're all of their flaws. Uh, are the fault of the media. They're the fault of fake news. They're the fault of anybody but themselves. And that's always been the case. But the demonizing of reporters who are just doing their jobs uh, has reached a crescendo uh, in the last six, seven, eight years. Uh, It's fallen off a little bit uh, since the change of administrations, but certainly there is a hefty portion of the population who still believes that uh, and carries it forward in their heads. There's still some leaders who are happy to uh, uh, carry that forward, as well. Uh, So I think there's been a number of changes uh, over the, as I said, not just over the last three to five years, uh, but over the past decades that have made things much more difficult for uh, news organizations.
1: So with this acceleration of technology, moving a lot more content from a journalism-based uh, front to an entertainment-based uh, content model, do you? How do you see social media playing a role in providing not just quick, the best and uh, best information, but making sure that the information that's out there is accurate and reliable?
0: Well, unfortunately, social media played very little role in making sure that people have access to the best information or reliable information. Uh, social media is all about the algorithm. It's all about spreading what people are talking about. And if you can get social media to start down a false path, it will just accelerate. Uh, there is no bonus in social media for reliable content. Uh, and I've, I've had uh, in situation with uh, people that I know on Facebook who will post something that is just not, not only untrue, but the story that they post doesn't reflect the headline. if, if you click on the story, and when I have pointed this out very, very gently, uh, because I'm not trying to be disagreeable, uh, the answer that I got was, well, I don't care. Uh, I don't try. I, I posted an Associated Press story that said uh, the opposite. And uh, this person said, uh, well, I, tr- I don't trust the Associated Press, I trust the Western Journal. Uh, I don't really care if it's true or not because I, there's an underlying truth here that is more important than the facts. I don't know how, how you <laughs> I don't know how you answer that and I didn't uh, because uh, you know that's the classic line from the Watergate scandal, don't confuse me with the facts my mind's made up. Uh, and uh, social media are just not just uh, passive uh, participants in this, they actively accelerate it. Uh, If you like this bogus content, they'll show you more of it. Uh, If you engage with stupid stuff, they will show you more stupid stuff. And they'll show it to your friends too. Uh, And then you can share it with your friends. And so you get this developing sort of parallel ecosystems. Uh, And a few years ago, um, the Wall Street Journal did a fascinating experiment uh, of red state and blue state Twitter feeds, and it showed you what your world, in real time, what your world would look like if uh, you were following places like the New York Times and the Washington Post, uh, Wall Wall Street Journal, uh, legitimate media, with what your world would like, look like if you were following Breitbart and uh, the right-wing media. And there was no overlap. There were, there were two completely different uh, worlds. And social media was, was, the, was just the means of how you get people in their bubble and keep them there. So you've got, now in this country, people with two completely different sets of reality. Uh, not, out of a, not out of ill will, uh, I don't think this person I was interacting with online wants to be fooled, wants to be dealing with bogus stuff, uh, she thinks she's got the right goods, uh, but she doesn't factually, but social media have amplified things in such a way that, uh, that people are living in, in parallel universes. And I don't know how you unring that, though. I don't know how you can change that. Uh, because social I, social media are here to stay one way or another. I mean, Twitter may fall because Elon Musk seems to be delighted in destroying the business he spent $44 billion on. But if Twitter's not there, somebody else will be there. Uh, and they all operate, they all have algorithms. They all operate in much the same way. I don't know what the answer is to that.
1: Yeah, it seems like Twitter is becoming that more or less central source of news, especially of late. There's also an emerging or emergence of smaller, call it independent shops that are trying to provide a little bit more of the journalistic integrity that social media does or lacks for the most part. Uh, How do you see, do you think that that's a viable route? for providing more accurate information. And a follow-up to that is, are people, citizens, interested in the truth?
0: Well, the second one is an easier question to answer. I think everybody's interested in the truth. I think people have different views of what that truth is. Uh, But I don't think anybody deliberately gets up in the morning and says, I think I'll swallow a bunch of lies today. so I, yeah, I think everybody is interested in the truth. Uh, I think that the um, the smaller platforms that you're talking about, Mastodon, Post, some of these platforms that are trying to replace Twitter, um, I don't know if they can scale. Truth Social hasn't gotten very far, and and Truth Social has Donald Trump behind it, and he was a huge driver of traffic to Twitter. Uh, so I, I don't know uh, who or if anybody is going to rise that's a, a, big, uh, a big platform. In a way, Twitter is not really that. Twitter is influential, but it doesn't have a huge active audience. Uh, what it does has, have is an audience of uh, movers and shakers, uh, politicians and journalists who are you know, often largely talking to each other. As opposed to the general public, uh, but who are influential because of that. Uh, whether there's going to be a uh, mass defection from Twitter to Mastodon, I see some some movement there. I see people saying, "Oh, I'm closing my Twitter account and I'm going to post." Um, but the problem is, if you leave Twitter, you leave that right now. You leave the conversation, and if you're trying to be an influencer, then you have to be in the conversation. So it's kind of a vicious cycle. There uh, for people who would like a better platform, but who don't wanna leave what is right now one of the most influential platforms just to the crazies.
1: And those people who have a little bit more sway and influence, what do you think are incentives that could help that particular group more uh, positively impact The community and providing information that is less biased?
0: Again, I think there are no easy answers. Uh, There's been some people talking about, uh, well, let's make all the news media nonprofit. Uh, But you look, you know, there are news media that are nonprofit. Now, uh, there's uh, the Tampa Bay Times. Uh, is owned by the Pointer Institute, which is a nonprofit uh, journalism institute, uh, and they've had layoffs. Uh, you know, there there are no the general trends don't respect whether you're for profit or nonprofit. Um, there are some uh, people who say, well, let's give subsidies to to the respectable news media. Government should be subsidizing news media, which is done in some countries. Uh, I think you run into real both real issues both with perception and reality when somebody's giving you money uh, that people, readers or listeners or viewers, whatever the medium you're talking about, um, then say, well, okay, if the government is paying the bills for the Providence Journal, then the government must be calling the tune for the Providence Journal, and I think there's also a danger that. Uh, the government leaders say, "Well, if we're subsidizing you, we're not paying you to investigate us. You know, so here's the conditions under which we'll give you that money." Uh, so, uh, yeah, I don't think there's easy or good answers to to how to, to how to solve this problem. Okay,
1: so looking at it from a consumer viewer perspective, with understanding that there are going to be multiple different sources, backers, agendas, perspectives, truths even. How well
0: there's only one truth, in my opinion. There people people have their own view of the truth. People have their own truths, but then there's the objective facts that constitute the actual truth, in my opinion.
1: Okay. So let me Edit that and ask How do viewers find more of those sources that convey and distribute the objective truths, objective truths, and more of them?
0: Another great question. Um, I think you have to be a, an active consumer. Uh, I think you need to uh, read with or view with skepticism. Uh, but also with an understanding that uh, if it, if everything is all on one side in what you're watching or what you're reading, you're probably not getting the real stuff. Uh, if you're if you're only seeing uh, the good things about somebody, and over here they're talking about other stuff. Uh, then you ought to seek out a more balanced media diet. Uh, there, and at the same time, some some negatives about things are just made up. I mean, that's, some things are just not. You know, it's tough. It's a tough world. There are so uh, one one thing you can do is go to something like Politifact.com, and Snopes.com, uh, the Washington Post fact checker the Associated Press's fact checking operation. These are operations that have spent a lot of time and effort over the years uh, ferreting out what is true and what is not. Uh, and they offer the proof. You know, so people today say, I want the receipts, right? Uh, and they will give you the receipts. Uh, if you look at something on PolitiFact.com, every statement they make is documented and footnoted. Uh, so that you can go and look at the original document yourself. You can go and look at the original uh, source of that material. Uh, and that's really the best way to determine it. Not just to take somebody's word for it, but uh, to, to look at the receipts, look at the, look at the sources, look at the footnotes in those kinds of things. Uh, that's the bedrock of, of journalism, is where did you... It's not just what do you know, but how do you know it? Who says? That's the question we always ask reporters. Who says? How do you know that? Okay, well, you've got to put that in the story. Who says? Where did that fact come from? Uh, And and so when you are reading or watching or listening, you should be asking yourself, how does that reporter, how does that commentator know what they're saying? If that commentator is saying, I'm just asking questions, I don't have any actual proof, but I just it doesn't make sense to me. I'm just asking questions. You can discount large portions of what that person says because they have admitted to you. They don't have the truth. They don't have the facts. They're asking questions, provocative questions because they want to get up an audience. A real reporter, real journalist says, here's how I know. Here's where my facts came from. You can decide for yourself if you think that that source is a reliable source. Uh, but you want to have, have the proof. Uh, one thing that we have always tried to do, not just at the journal but at most uh, publications, is not to use unnamed sources unless uh, you had at least two confirm- two independent sources confirming the same facts. Uh, unless uh, and unless the story was important enough to warrant use of unnamed sources, because re- readers and viewers are quite rightly suspicious because it goes back to that, well, how do you know? Who says? So ask yourself those questions as a consumer. Does this person offer the proof? What is the proof this person offers? And if you are satisfied with those answers, you're in a good place.
1: Thanks for that, and just to kind of wrap things up here, you know, we live in such a divisive world with many different factions, and it seems like people are chomping at the bits to look to argue, look to disagree. But and maybe this is just uh, maybe this is just an opinion from looking at social media um, or driven by social media. But in general. How, what, what's the advice to, for people just as humans to cultivate more empathy uh, and respect to kind of exist and coexists in this world with each other, uh, understanding that there will be disagreements and views and perspectives.
0: I think you sort of touched on a key in, in the question which is to remember that the people you're interacting with are people. They are actual human beings. On the other end of that Facebook post or that Twitter post, uh, they are, and, that's, and celebrities are people too. You know, So people that you think you can just say horrible, hurtful things about are on the other end, receiving that. Uh, cultivate that sense of empathy. Uh, online, as well as in your daily life, uh, that um, you're not just there to make a wisecrack, to make yourself seem smart at the expense of somebody else. Uh, You're there to help people, to help other people, to help yourself when you need to, uh, but to uh, to have human empathy for people online and in your in your in your daily life, uh, you know that waiter who brought you the wrong thing didn't do it on purpose. Uh, the you know the the person who uh, bumped into you wasn't trying to knock you down. We're all human beings trying to get along in the world and. If you can recognize that that's the case with everybody else as well as for yourself, then I think you're on your way.
1: Thank you so much for taking the time today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. That's a wrap for today's episode of Leadership Unboxed. We hope you found this episode informative in highlighting the importance of service and passion in shaping our communities. Don't forget to tune in for more leadership stories, insights, and inspiration. Thank you for listening.